One week ago today, I was preaching at a pulpit in Rees-Orangis, France, and I was able to bring the second half of what I started the last time we were there six months ago in October when I was asked to preach. I, was, I preached the first part of the story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And so, six months later, I was able to preach the second half of that narrative. So that's the sort of riddle. Who is a person was asked to preach in France. He preached, and it took him six months to finish. <laughs> you thought my sermons were long. That's the riddle. You have to answer that for yourselves. So we're glad to be back. So blessed to be up here at this uh, pulpit, sharing the Word of God with you. And this morning we have a special message that's coming out of the Scriptures. And the title given to me as, let me just clarify, coming back to the West, we had much adjustment to make in terms of the jet lag, the time difference. It takes us about twice as long to adjust when we come back as when we go there. So what that provided for me was a whole lot of time communing with the Lord as he would be pleased to allow me to wake up at 3 or 4 a.m. And as I communed with him, as I uh, was sharing sweet fellowship with the Lord in my prayer time and communal time in bed, still not uh, up yet, still not fully awake in some cases, uh, this, these are things that he was revealing to me. This idea of the way of peace, where we have a, a world right now that is immersed in conflict. There's conflicts all the way from marriages to friends to churches to whole nations. Everywhere we look, there's conflict. And the Lord wants to make it clear to us all how we are able to find peace. And so the subhead there for you is from conflict to conciliation at the cross of Christ. So you know where this is going. We're going to take a biblical journey to see how we can get there. So this word conciliate is probably one you may not be fully aware of or used to. It simply means to draw together. It's a word that means to unite. It's a word that means peacemaking. We are called to be peacemakers. We know that, of course, from the Sermon on the Mount. We are to make peace. And the tragic thing about it is that the Lord has given all human beings the way of peace. We know the way from the Word of God. And so there are, it surprises us that so few find it. When we were in uh, Rees Orangis, which is essentially a southern suburb of Paris, we chose not to tour Paris like we did last time because that place has been on fire. Violent riots since January. These unresolved conflicts. So we decided to go to a much more tame Versailles instead. Very much enjoyed that, that time and that tour. Um, some of you may remember a bit of history during World War II. Uh, Neville Chamberlain, during 1937 to 1940, was the prime minister uh, of England during that time. And in 1938, in September of 1938, he went to Munich. And so there we were in Munich. So I, I had to think about the peace accords that he signed together with another leader, a leader of then the German country named Adolf Hitler. He signed what were known as the peace accords with him, 
where Hitler agreed to peace and Neville, Chamber, Neville, Neville Chamberlain came back, stood outside of number 10 Downing Street and waved the peace accord papers and said, I believe we have achieved peace in our time. Go home, he said, and have a nice, quiet sleep. One year later, Chancellor Hitler was invading Poland and World War II was declared. So there is no true peace. We see in Jeremiah 6, 14, you're familiar with this verse, where the Lord says through his prophet, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there, what? Is no peace. There's only one way to find peace. It's not by getting somebody who's as much a rascal as Adolf Hitler, and as we went through Dachau and toured uh, that concentration camp after we had arrived, um, it's, it's stunning. It's um, something to see. It's um, gripping uh, to see the ovens and the gas chambers and all of those things. Uh, it's, it's very, very powerful and moving. But let's start with this. This is fundamental. There is no true peace apart from biblical truth. There isn't any. The best you can hope for is a truce an agreement between two parties that they're just not going to fight anymore because it's, it's mutually ex- expedient to both parties not to do it. Right now, Israel's exchanging bombs uh, with the Gaza Strip, right, with the Palestinians. There's war and rumors of war everywhere. There's so much fighting in our own country, we can hardly keep track of it all. As I met with pastors in Germany and in France, I got to hear their stories about the conflicts in their church and the splits and the division and all. There there is no hope for reconciliation unless we conciliate at that one place that the Lord has given us. So that's the good news, and there couldn't be better, right? We're here to commemorate what it took to provide the means for our reconciliation with God and with other people, even with whole nations, they won't find peace any other way. So just as sort of an anchor text, I want to encourage you with John 14, 27. Listen carefully. You're familiar with this verse, but listen carefully to what Jesus is saying here. Peace, I leave you. My peace, I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The greatest prophet and savior of the world couldn't be more profound and prophetic in forecasting the things that we experience when we haven't found peace in our lives or in our nation. We're troubled in our hearts. We live with sort of an angst, a a mild sort of dripping faucet of worry and anxiety because of the state of things. And yet the cross is still there. He says, not as the world gives. (laughs) That's because the world's ways of finding peace are nothing more than an illusion. It's a false front. It's a mirage. 
Because you cannot have peace, true, genuine peace, unless and until you go through the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. It's the only hope we have. So Christ gives, men take. Christ offers, men demand. Two opposing efforts to try to find peace. He offers peace. He, is, he himself is a gift. He offers the peace as a gift, and the gift is him. He is the gift. He is peace. He is biblical truth. He is the life. There is no other way on this planet to find peace. As I said, all there can be at most is a temporary secession of an agreement, perhaps, not to fight anymore. Many marriages are like that, right? They don't have any other way, so they finally, they're tired of fighting, and they just cease fighting. Have they resolved the problem? They have not. Whole nations, same thing. They never will. And the Lord is allowing this in terms of our eschaton to escalate, because it's part of our end times doctrine. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Pretty much what we're seeing now, escalating further and further. One wonders how much further it will get before the Lord's return. So the center and core foundation of this peace that we're talking about is at the Christ where Christ makes at, at the cross where Christ makes his sacrifice to make that possible. That's the core. That's why I think this message here from his word is perfectly appropriate for what we celebrate today in Holy Communion. So we never forget the cost. You know, the Jews have a, a, a concerted effort nationally. We were in Yad Vashem when we were in Israel. We were in the museum. Yad Vashem means the name. And its whole design is so that nobody will ever forget the Holocaust. And yet there's still people rather unstable, I would, I would suggest, that deny that there ever was a holocaust. It's stunning how the depths of man's sin that can prevent him from turning every, anywhere and everywhere except to the Lord f to find peace. It's remarkable. Ephesians 2, 14 to 16, and you won't hear any new passages or verses here. But look at them piece by piece. Consider carefully what is said here. I think this is one of the most important passages to what we're talking about here. Listen to what's said. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace. We sing that song, don't we? He is our peace. He's broken down every wall. He is our peace and so on. He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So where man has hostility with man, he's broken down the wall which prevents them from ever reconciling, ever finding the way of peace. So, he goes on to say in verse 15, how did he do it? By abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. 
and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. An amazing passage. I wish we had time to break it down. But you're familiar with it, and think about this. It's in Christ that that wall is torn down to make two warring parties able to come together in one body, which is Christ. He brings them together, listen, in himself. That's remarkable. Have you figured out what that looks like yet? It's another amazing, difficult concept for us to wrap our minds around. One body. When we go to Germany and France and we start talking to our brothers and sisters, they share the same doctrine we do, the same Reformed doctrine as we do. So it's like we've known them all our lives, so to speak. We have things in common only because it's Him that brings us together. Otherwise, we would have no hope. We would be cordial at best and part company because of the differences in our culture. We do parting well. That's a default setting for us. That's easy, really. Oh, it's hurtful, but we're willing to do it. Tear things apart. That's what we do. Fight. War. From whence comes wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even in your flesh, that wars finds no rest and no peace. You fight in war because you have not. You have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you might consume it on your own lust. That's quite an indictment from James 4, isn't it? That's us. That's us. But what's wonderful, sort of as bookends, bookends, in other words, chapter 14 through 16 is Jesus' final instructions to the disciples. Very important passage. After chapter 13 and the foot washing and the Last Supper and Judas does his thing, Jesus concentrates on his final teaching to the disciples from chapter 14 to 16. And then in 17, he prays that beautiful prayer in chapter 17 to the Father, and then they get him. They come and get him, and that's the end. So this is bookended. He says in verse 27 or 14, as we just read, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. It's a reassurance because our hearts are troubled. As long as we're in hostility, as long as we're fighting and warring, two factions in our country, blue, the blue team and the red team, as long as we're continuing to fight, there's going to be this disturbance in our hearts as long as things refuse to find their way to the cross. The other bookend, of course, is John 16 at the end of the chapter where Jesus ends with this. John 16, 33, I have said these things to you. So he's giving them the reason that he taught them all these things in these three chapters. Why? That in me you may have peace. Listen, you are not going to find it any other way. And I say that to my Christian brothers and sisters. Yet we try. We try. We keep trying to adjust things and navigate things. Why? Because of what it takes to get to the cross. But we're going to go ahead and look at that this morning. It costs. It costs something. It costs everything. 
It cost him everything. Why shouldn't it cost me everything? Like everything gets laid down. That's why he's taught these things. He says that in me you may have peace. That's what I want for you. I want the unification. I want the end of hostilities. I'm willing to lay down my life for my friends that they might be able to do that. In the world you will have tribulation. So he's truth, right? So he's not going to avoid the truth. That's the truth of it. You're going to have that. This isn't, you might. This isn't maybe. This isn't watch how you act. Or you'll have to... No, you're going to have it. Here it is. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And he's given us the ability to do the same. I don't rely on a political party. I hope you don't. I don't rely on certain human emissaries to come and resolve things. So we're going to look at four parts to this that I think are important for us to remember But first, this statement that launches where we're going. The way of peace is found only at the cross of Jesus Christ. You wouldn't think you'd have to say that, right? You've been a Christian for how long? You're reformed. You're biblically astute. You you have to actually continue to remind yourself. You know what Milton Vincent wrote? Are you familiar with the gospel primer? Do you know why he wrote that? Because he came afresh or anew to the gospel? That's all it is. It's just the gospel. I mean, it's just scripture, right? He wrote that because how often do we need that? Jerry Bridges in his wonderful ministry while he was still on this planet did a wonderful job of reminding us, I need the gospel when? Now. I need it every day. Remember the qualifier. He said, you'll have peace in me. You remain in me. You'll find peace. You'll overcome the world. And it's craziness. The world can burn itself down and you'll have peace. People can seek to ruin your life and you'll have peace because you remain in me. Hold on. Hold on. Don't let go of the cross. Your world's about to get rocked. You're not going to know what side's up, whether it's a health issue or what the issue is. This is the only way to find peace Now let's talk about the danger, first of all, of circumventing the cross. What does circumventing mean? Well, you know what the word circumference means. Do Christians do that? Yes. When they have the blessed, blood-stained cross of Jesus Christ, they still mm, go around. They might have some, some verses thrown in there or whatever, but they're not doing... They don't know the way of peace. There's a single path to peace. And so they circumvent it. They go around. So they might even call themselves Christians. There's probably plenty of people that are warring against each other right now that consider themselves Christians. But here's the danger. Circumventing the cross, as that word suggests, will draw you into a cyclical, rhetorical vortex from which there's no escape. The only escape is the way of the cross, the way of peace. There aren't several ways. There's one. It's singular. There's one Savior. There's one way, one path, and it's broad or narrow? It's narrow. And few there are that find it. Has that ever confounded you? It has me. Few? 
all they have to do is follow Christ to the cross and it doesn't matter what the issue is, it can get resolved. This vortex you get sucked into is rhetorical. In other words, it's words and it's more words and it's rehashed and it's more rehashed and it goes over and over. Why? Because it's circling the cross. It's not found its way. Second point. We need to understand then the difference between compassion and condemnation. It's really the difference, speaking of the Samaritan woman, as we move past her next week and we go on to the next part of the text in chapter 3. It's the difference between how Jesus treated the Samaritan woman and how the townspeople did. The townspeople were judgmental. They were accusatory. They were finger-waggers. They ostracized her. Division? Easy. I don't want to have nothing to do with you. You can go to the well by yourself. Remember? That's condemnation. That's not compassion. Compassion is grief over her sin. Not bringing up the law and the ways that she's violated the law and leave her there. It's horribly cruel what they've done to her. And you've all seen that as we've gone through that text. So conciliation, we could say, is conducted at the mercy seat, not the judge's bench. Let me say that again. Conciliation is found at the mercy seat only, not the judge's bench. Which do you think we're most inclined to sit on when there's an issue? I'll let you think about it while I read John 12, 47 to 49. Listen to what Jesus says here. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, you've sinned, right? I do not judge him. Wow. Yeah. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Maybe our evangelism would be far more effective if we just really drilled down on this idea right here. He didn't come to judge he came to save the world. How did he do that? Well, let's spend some time this hour figuring that out. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words already has a judge. They've already been judged. So what's our job? To get out the stone tablets like the townspeople did to the Samaritan lady? Remind her of her horrible sins and leave her there? The word he says that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. If that person remains unrepentant to what they've already been judged on and they remain unrepentant their entire lives, they're going to face the judge, right? That's why we need the gospel. That's why we need Christ. We need his mercy. We need his grace. We've already been judged. But to remain under that, into that rhetorical, cyclical swirl that circumvents the cross is bone-crushing. I read a recent article in a, in a magazine where there was a study done that, um, from the Journal of Science, Social Science and Medicine. It's a study entitled The Politics of Depression. 
and I'm quoting here, takes a close look at raw data from the surveys studied by Pew Research in March 2020. Here's what they found. Listen carefully, because you'll have to interpret this. Heightened perceptions of bias and discrimination are robustly associated with mental anguish, social strain, and adverse physical outcomes. According to the examination of the data by the American, some, some outfit called the American Affairs, they wrote, the more people perceive themselves to be surrounded by others who harbor bias or hostility against them, and the more they view their life prospects as a hostage to a system that is fundamentally rigged against them, the more likely they become to experience anxiety, depression, and psychogenic and psychosomatic health problems. Problems. End quote. That's true. That's true. If there is no way of escape for that girl that's being bullied, if she's being told, you're just a bad person, you're this, you're that, I'm not going to use some of the words, and it never has any way of escape, she'll find herself thinking that she needs to atone for herself because she's nothing but a sinner. So what, is she, what are some of the things she starts doing? She's atoning for herself. Blood must be let. She starts cutting. I'm using this from an example from a woman I talked to in Germany. She approached me and said, Can I talk to you? And I said, Of course, a young mom. She's got a 15-year-old daughter who's the victim of bullying. But the problem is she's suffering now the same things that are considered post-traumatic stress, same symptoms, same symptoms as a, a man returning from war. So we're expanding the diagnosis there because the symptoms are so similar. Nightmares and all, all sorts of bad things that go on. And with her, she went on to tell me, and uh, I said, well, Tell me about what's going on. She said, well, my daughter's not, not afraid to be... My, my daughter's a fighter. My, my daughter sticks up for people being bullied. I said, oh, well, then what's, what's the issue? So while well, she was seeing a girl getting bullied, and she vapor-locked. She didn't do anything about it. Probably fear, right? Some of those are pretty scary situations. The girl who was being bullied killed herself. So she took on the guilt of that girl's self-inflicted death. And she said she resolved to never let that happen again. Another girl was being bullied. So she intervened. And so she herself became the object of bullying. This is the same idea. If it's all law, if it's all condemnation, if, if it's all accusation, there's no hope. And a person can't stay under the weight of those stone tablets very long. They're judging her. They're telling her, no, this is who you are. You are defined by these things. One, two, three. And they do it in the most mean-spirited, mean-spirited way. But at the mercy seat, love is the driving motivation to resolve an issue. Love is the driving motivation. With the judge's bench, 
Control is the driving motivation. Control. That's why there's no way out. Because I'm going to keep this vortex until you're destroyed. And in the first girl's case, she killed herself. Success. All those things that are reported. And by the way, psychologists, we don't ignore medicine or psychology. The the, the thing that psychologists have over the body of Christ is how studious they are at observing the human condition and describing it. That's all they're doing. And this is dead on in terms of its description and effect. Here's the point I want you to take home. Avoid allowing people to control the narrative of your identity. Avoid allowing anyone to control the narrative of your identity. That rhetorical vortex that's only filled with accusations, law, and condemnation. Don't do it. So we reject the culture's humanistic way of resolving a problem like this. They want to just build up their self-esteem. They're, they're wrong-headed. They might be sincere in trying to help somebody like that, somebody that's, in my example, being bullied. No, we, we, we want to avoid that because that bolsters pride. See, this is all about pride, if you haven't picked up on that. They don't, they don't have any use for grace or mercy because pride, because of their own inherent pride. But Christ takes a different way. So instead, recognize and embrace your true identity in Christ. Which is what? That we're perfect? That we're that any of those things that are being said are they're they're all false? No, they're not. But I met with mercy and I met with grace as you are when we get to the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the only way. It's the only way. But that requires something that some people just aren't willing to muster. What is it? Humility. They won't do it. Why? Because it's about control. These cruel, mean-spirited girls are, are in control. And that feeds their pride. That's, if you've ever wondered why they would do such a thing, it feeds and fuels the pride I'm better than you, right? So they've, they've controlled the narrative of this other girl's identity. That's what's cruel. And, and if there's no escape, which there isn't in that vortex, it's bone-crushing. So let's third talk about the countenance of Christ, because this is the way in which we ought to approach an issue of conflict, whether national, marital, whatever it is. Girls in a school. The countenance of Christ. He is El Roi, which is, of course, a moniker given when Hagar is out there and the Lord tends to her. It's God who sees me. God sees me. God sees you. And that's how we're to look at this. So we look with the eyes of Christ when someone is hurt. And or offended. And we meet them with care, compassion, 
concern, and caution. It's a whole other condition of the heart. It's a whole takes on a whole different tone. Number of times throughout our time together, I've mentioned if we do this in our marriages, we would do much better. Instead of coming in with condemnation, instead when one spouse fails or does something that's truly wrong, you know, you can point it out biblically, it's met with grief instead of condemnation. See, condemnation is convenient for me if, I'm, if I want my pride satiated, right? I just want to be right here. That's a control. Again. That's not getting it to the cross. It's not saying, I'm grieved over this person's sin. My heart's broken that they're failing, that they've made mistakes, that they've sinned, whatever the case might be. It's met with the eyes of Christ with care, concern, and compassion, and a caution. He did that with the Samaritan woman. It's exactly what he did, and she found peace. She found peace in a way that she would never find in her town, in Sychar. Not with that group. So peace only comes in the presence of Jesus Christ. So if you don't know him, this is the only way you're going to find true peace. is through the cross of Christ. So four, this morning I want to look at the concourse at the Christ. Concourse might be another term that we're not very familiar with. Some of you know what a concourse is at an airport or a train station. So here's the definition. It's a place where paths, pathways and roads meet and people gather together. An act or process of coming together and merging. The only place we can get true conciliation is at the concourse of the cross. And that's a pretty broad area. The concourse of the cross is broad. It's wide enough for how many people? Everyone. How many are invited? Everyone. So if we're going to draw together and unite, we've got to find our way, whatever path we're on in our conflict or whatever it might be, to the concourse, to that broad area where all paths are to meet to the one resolution to the problem, and that is Jesus Christ, who unites us. When we were flying into, or when we were, um, yeah, when we flew into Frankfurt, we didn't this time, but when we, because we went to Munich, there's a massive train station there. There's, I don't know how many railways that come in to that one place. So they have this huge open area where people, it just fills the place because all those are coming into the one station. It's like Penn Station, Grand Central Station. You can go to the Tri-Cities area, anywhere in the Tri-Cities area from one subway ride because you can take it all the way. That path leads to that concourse and from there you can go. That's the idea. And it's large enough for all people, but there are a few that find their way. Either through ignorance because they just didn't know. Maybe they're hearing it now. Or they choose not to. They choose to take a different track. They're going to do it a different way. And there we go. There we go. It's like Israel and the Palestinians. 
How many times have we seen this just in our lifetime? You're throwing bombs, we're throwing bombs. You're throwing bombs, we're throwing bombs. Jesus made it clear in John 14, verse 4 to 6. You know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All must meet at the cross. Those who choose ways of dealing with conflict that avoid this path and follow their own will never find peace, ever. They never will. I found a passage from Isaiah that I think it's one of the best explanations of what we've been looking at here. Listen to this. Isaiah 59, 8-15 begins in verse 8. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. They never will if they stay on those paths. Verse 9, Therefore justice is far from them, and righteousness does not overtake them. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. Verse 12, for our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us and our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off for truth has stumbled in the public square and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. And this, he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Zechariah, the New Testament prophet, whose son was John the Baptist, who was the prophet of the Most High, you remember that, he said what Jesus was going to come to bring. Now, leave Isaiah and his prophecies now come into the birth of Christ just before Christ is born. Luke 1, 76 to 79. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's it. That's what he's come to show us. John the Baptist has come to show us that Jesus is the way of peace. He's saying, prepare ye, what? The way, the way of peace. 
He's come. He's provided that way. There is no other way. It's a narrow path, but you must find it. That's John the Baptist. That was his role. So the sole purpose of John the Baptist was to prepare, you'll remember that, the way of the Lord that will lead to the cross. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord there's refuge when no one else wants to find it. God is our refuge. What wonderful songs we sang this morning. God is our refuge. Find your refuge there. McLaren said, The reason why men are in hostility with one another is the central selfishness of each. And there is only one way by which men's relations can be thoroughly sweetened. And that is by the divine love. Love, not condemnation, not judgment. The divine love of Jesus Christ pouring into their hearts and casting out the devil of selfishness. End quote. So the divine, the, the driving force again to this idea that motivates us to be reconciled at the cross of Jesus Christ is the love of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's what should drive us. As 2 Corinthians 5 says, verse 14, the love of Christ compels us, drives us forward. And when we do that, we don the eyes of Christ so that we're looking at the people with compassion, with care, with concern, and with caution. And that's how we go to them. I'm broken from what I'm seeing, brother. It grieves me. We say to our spouses, we don't chide them or drop the law on them. The law has already been dropped. And it's a terrible thing to leave somebody under it. You'll suffocate them. John 15. So these are all coming from John. Lord willing, we'll get to these again one day. John 15, 12 to 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Love one another, not the way you define it, but the way I have loved you with care, compassion, concern, and caution. Greater love has no one that someone should lay down his life for his friends. Romans 12, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Ephesians 5, 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Hebrews 13, 1. Let brotherly love continue. 1 Peter 1, 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. It's all through the New Testament. It's all through Scripture. And we know from the Old Testament what the greatest commandments are. And that's what they are. But this is the best description here, I think. 1 Peter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you, I like how he gets every one of our attention, have unity of mind, 
sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. There it is in one verse. If we forget the rest, let's work toward that. A unity of mind only derived from Scripture. That's the only thing that will put us on the same page, that will lead the path to the cross so we can get this thing reconciled. But with sympathy, not condemnation, with brotherly love, somebody that cares about the other person more than ourselves, a tender heart, not a condemning heart, and a humble mind. When I reflect on the sin that I've been forgiven of, Every time we take communion, it should be striking us, shouldn't it? We've always said the ground is level around the cross. It's level because we're all as wretched as we could possibly be. That's depravity. There's nobody who was born a little bit with a little bit more virtue than anybody else. We're born dead and blind, offenders of God. Romans 5 says we're the enemies of God. Every one of us. That should humble us. Maybe I don't know all things, but it grieves me what I do think I see. You come with humility. Galatians 6.1 when, Brothers, when someone's caught in sin, caught up in sin, that Greek idea in the text there means somebody, because sometimes we sin, don't we? Sometimes we sin. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. Katartizo, it's the same word for mending a fishing net or mending a broken arm. You who are in the medical community, are you rough with that when somebody's got a broken arm? Oh, you, you, you feel their pain. I mean, you're very tender. In a spirit of gentleness, that verse says. In a spirit of gentleness, kindness. The love of Christ, the eyes of Christ. Being careful lest you be caught up yourself. That's humility. That's the humble mind Peter's writing about. Otherwise, don't go. Please, don't go. If this is a family member of yours, a neighbor, a co-worker, don't go. If it's bothering you that somebody you know is sinning, don't go until you get your heart right. Or anyone can be reconciled with anyone else. The heart must be made right with God. I want to read Colossians 3, 12 to 15. Colossians chapter 3. This puts it together too. This is a very, very comprehensive passage as well. 12 through 15, Colossians 3. Put on then. As God's chosen ones. You you reformed brothers and sisters. Put on holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, above everything he just named, what do you think he says? Put on love. Problem is, 
Maybe we don't really know what that looks like. Maybe we don't really understand. Maybe it's just a, a, a sacrifice too far. It's like too much. It's too challenging to my pride. I'm just too right here. Put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. If it's not love that motivates, if it's not the love of Christ that's driving us, then it falls apart. The wheels come off the wagon. It unravels. It circumvents. And there you go in the vortex again. But this, verse 15, And let the peace of Christ rule your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. Remember Ephesians 2? In one body and be thankful. It's challenging. It's challenging indeed. The only hope we have for true conflict, reconciliation, achieving true peace is by following the Savior's leading through the Word of God. The path is the same for both the offender and the offended. It's the same path. We walk hand in hand to that cross or it's not getting reconciled. That's the bottom line. Both must follow God's plan for reconciliation. Here's the stepping stones as we're winding this up this morning. Here's the stepping stones. Just to make it nice and concise for us from Scripture, we've seen Scripture. Of course, we could do a series on this. The first thing that takes place is confrontation. Whether that's public, you know, from the pulpit, or that's private, somebody coming to you or I. Are you going to someone, family member, neighbor, coworker? That's confrontation. Now, you have a choice here if you're the one who is being confronted. You have a choice. How will you respond? Will you respond with the second step, conviction, now, that's a forensic term. That, that is a, a, a lawyer's term. Do we have conviction or do we not? Are they truly guilty or are they being accused of something that is not really true guilt? You take ownership of the things that are true convictions, the true guilt that you bear, and you take it to the cross or you'll find no relief. None. But separate it. You have to separate it. The true and the false guilt. Horrible things those girls were saying to that young girl who killed herself. Terrible. Because what the vortex, that rhetorical vortex filled with rhetoric going on and on and on, you know what it could do? Over time, what it does? It doesn't create a true profile or portrait of the person any longer. It's grown legs. It has a life of its own. It's its own living entity, and it creates a caricature. You know what that is? A caricature? You know what that is. Yeah. We laugh at them, but some of them can be hideous, right? Because the worst parts about that person have been accentuated and driven over and over and over until it's not even an accurate profile of the person or portrait of the person. It's a caricature. That's when I said earlier, you have to avoid someone who's controlling the narrative of your true identity. My true identity, same as yours. A sinner saved by grace. Thank God. Praise the Lord. We're going to commemorate that in here in a few minutes. There's no escape unless this biblical path is followed. 
That true conviction, yeah, that's right. That leads to the third step, contrition. Where the one was objective, legal, this is subjective. This is Psalm 32. This is my, my strength left me. Like the fever pitch of summer, I had no strength. My bones were being crushed because of the weight of my sin, as David confessed it. Of course, he has his psalm of repentance in Psalm 51. I wish we had time to look at those. We don't. So this is the third step. This is getting closer to the cross. Now I'm willing to make confession. It's the fourth step. I confess this to God and the person that was offended. That's it. We've come to the cross. We've found forgiveness. The stepping stones that lead to the cross of Jesus Christ where we find forgiveness, where we find rest, where we find reconciliation with God, with others, and we find peace. There's no peace. There's no happiness. There's no joy except we be made right with God. And that is the path. Always has been, always will be. You miss any of that, you're in the vortex. You're circumventing the cross. He'll leave you there. Be not deceived. God's not mocked. What you sow, you're going to reap. Galatians 6, 7. You're going to reap. You're stuck out there. It's not getting to the cross. What is this nightmare? It's the rhetorical vortex. It's accusation. It's condemnation, apart from which you will be crushed under the weight of the stone tablets. McLaren said this with regard to John 14, 27. Peace may be ours in the midst of warfare and of storms, for Christ with us reconciles us to God, harmonizes us with ourselves, and brings us into amity with men. That just means friendship, harmony with other human beings and makes the world all good, end quote. Psalm 16, 8 and 9, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. As these storms come around the world or in your home, this is the way to find refuge, the only place. Christ, the strong tower. You think it's bad now, it's going to get worse. We can be assured of that because, again, that's our doctrine of end times. Here's some of the stories. I've spent... The past two weeks from pastors in Germany, pastors in France, American pastors who were along with me. Same stories going on there, friends. Conflict, troubles. And one of the churches, I remember the pastor was saying, can I talk to you? He says, we got one woman who's been going around, we refer to it as poisoning the well, and talking to different people. How do you, how do you deal with that? These things are common. Nothing has tried you or 
tempted you, but such as is common to all men. And it's God who's faithful, who will, with that trial or temptation, make a way of escape that you may endure it. This, this is the only way of escape. Always has been, always will be. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It's so comprehensive. It gives us hope. It gives us hope in those seasons of hopelessness where we think we're trapped because of physical issues or or national issues, uh, politics, riots. Lord, we, we never want to be waving a piece of paper and saying we've achieved real peace in our time if it's apart from the cross of Jesus Christ like Neville Chamberlain did. We can't go home and have a quiet night sleep as he recommended back then unless and until we find ourselves at the cross of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that for all of us, we would hasten to go there now, to say thanks, O Lord, to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts and be thankful. Help us to do that as we've been made one body. So may you be glorified. In Christ's name, amen.